Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Chips, the soccer podcast from Vice Sports. This is Aaron Gordon. I'm a staff writer here in the U.S. office. To continue with the tradition of me then describing the weather very lamely, it's snowing out actually, which is pretty pretty cool because I thought that New York was done experiencing snow as a result of climate change. But no, we still get snow, so that's cool. Joining me on the line is Will McGee, staff writer in Vice Sports UK. Will, how are things in London? I assume they're much better than they are here. Yeah, no, things fine. I think quite similar, really. We've been sort of experiencing global protests, haven't we? So I guess we're sort of protesty. You guys are protesty. Lots of, lots of protesting going on. I was talking with our producer, Tim, before the show. You know, we were exchanging our small talk about how our weekends were. And we came to the conclusion that, you know, just protesting on weekends seems like just part of our lives now. Like, Monday through Friday, you go to work. Saturday, Sunday, you go to protest. And But I do think it's pretty convenient that here on the East Coast in the U.S., our protests generally don't really get started until the afternoon. And with the EPL on in the mornings, it's really quite seamless. You know, I wake up, I watch soccer, and then I go to the protest. And I don't know, I think this is just going to be the next four years. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like quite a good way to spend the weekend, really. Quite exciting. Keeps you active, doesn't it? Keeps you fit, protesting. So, yeah, I mean, you know, go to the pub maybe. And, oh, I guess you guys watch it, like, in, in bed. But yeah. we can here, can probably just go to the pub, maybe watch, like, Arsenal Southampton, and then, you know, protest international fascism. That's a good Saturday. Yeah, mixing international commercialism and capitalism with protest of the ramifications of that. So Exactly, yeah. Speaking of international unfettered market capitalism arsenal drew sutton in the what is this going to be the fifth round of the fa cup this is you know a very well i don't want to say classic fa cup matchup because it's certainly not classic but it's like a classic fa cup outcome where you know one non-league team makes it further than any other non-league team and then has to play one of england's traditional giants in a fifth round fa cup matchup which the traditional giant debates how much to actually care about and but for the other team it is like the culmination of years of effort and planning and it's it's a very weird dynamic but good for sutton will do you guys pronounce sutton differently because i always find that like words that i think are unambiguously like this is the way to pronounce it you guys add in like an extra five syllables so 
I just want to make sure I'm doing it right. I'm really tempted to tell you like some ridiculous pronunciation and then just let you say that for the rest of the podcast, but... It's actually pronounced Sutton Lincolnshire. <laughs> for the sake of our professional relationship, I'll confirm that, yeah, it is, it's just Sutton, yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> Sutton probably is now most famous for employing or at least having a bricklayer on the team who also plays soccer pretty well i don't actually know his name like will do you know the name of this esteemed bricklayer i think when a bricklayer plays in the fa cup their name sort of just fades into obscurity and literally the only thing or feature by which they're identifiable is the fact that they are indeed by layman's terms a bricklayer i wish they gave them like you know how when mascots get names it's always like mousy mcmouse it's like i wish i wish they gave him like this so he just was bricky bricklayer now like this is bricky the bricklayer yeah no i agree yeah or just have bricklayer on the back of his shirt instead of his name <laughs> yeah once once sutton goes all in on this team ethos every player should just have their day job as their nameplate on the back i like that it's weird because it seems like you know every time one of these sutton like teams advances you hear about you know these guys day jobs and it's a, it's a nice story you know certainly the english press loves them a good bricklayer but it also seems like they always have the same four jobs like there's no employment diversity in terms of like what non-league football players do for a day job it's like bricklayer plumber just general builder and then like probably some other type of builder or like your four jobs yeah it's there's like a very small selection of like slightly manual working class jobs they do basically i would put in like postman there's often a postman in there maybe an electrician or a mechanic you usually get something like that but yeah, it's quite good to see Sutton have a, you know, a brickie on the team because even almost national league level or conference level, that's the fifth tier of English football. There are, there are quite a lot of kind of formerly professional footballers down there these days. So yeah, it's, it's still, it's kind of romanticism of the past really, which is nice. But yeah, you're definitely right. Footballers at the sort of in the minnow teams of the FA Cup generally are drawn from a very niche pool of employment. So on a team like Sutton at that level, I don't know very much about the teams basically past the top four. Do all of them have day jobs or is it just like a few who maybe make less than other players in the team? Uh, yeah, it's interesting. I think Sutton have, I think it's Gavin Hoyt. Is it Gavin Hoyt? I think so on the, on the team. who's a former Arsenal player. They certainly have at least one former Arsenal player. I'm hoping I've got this right and it's Gavin Hoyt. Yeah, so I guess a lot of them are like uh, academy products and former uh, professional footballers who've dropped down the leagues, in which case they are, you know, I don't know whether they do maintain a day job on the side or whether they just have the higher wages. Then the rest of the team will be made up of kind of more people with day jobs, like you say, or people with full-time employment. By the way, it is not Gavin Hoyt. He's on Eastleigh. So, who is it? Is it Craig Eastman? Craig... Gooseman? <laughs> Craig Eastman. Craig Eastman. Oh, sorry, I didn't hear Craig Eastman. I'm looking him up. Yeah, it's Craig Eastman. He okay. is a former Arsenal midfielder who came through Arsenal's academy and was with Arsenal as a senior player, although he was sparsely used from 2009 to 2013. Sorry, Gavin Hoy, wherever you are. Eastleigh. He's in, he's in Eastleigh. Oh, I see. Right. Well, I'm sorry I've confused various different former interchangeable 
Arsenal youngsters who didn't make it. I've got to say, like, Craig Eastman, this is a guy who I've literally never heard of until just now, which, like, is not an insult to Craig Eastman. I haven't heard of most people, and I feel like that's often misconstrued as, like, an insult when you hear a professional footballer, you're like, never heard of this guy. And it's like, well, I don't know. There are a lot of guys out there. He basically, I mean, it's just been a slow trickle down for him because he started at Arsenal, had four appearances over four years, but he was on loan for a lot of that time. Millwall, Colchester, and then Yeovil Town, and now he's at Sutton. Like, that's just, he's just moving on down. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, I don't know whether because he's previously been at quite a high level of professional football that he would have taken on another job. I mean, it's an interesting thing. We'd have to ask Craig Eastman, Craig, what do you do with the rest of your week when you're not playing for Sutton United? In fact, Craig, if you're listening, get in contact with us and tell us what the hell you do with your time. Yeah, according to Wikipedia, which is the ultimate source, he made £52,000 in 2012 for salary, which, you know, if that's what he was making at a time when he was at a higher level... I find it hard to believe that he made enough at that level to sustain a lower wage in non-league. I don't know. That's just me guessing, though. It's really difficult to say. I have no idea what his wages were like before. So I guess that there are quite a lot of players at, like, Sutton level who are, like, former academy prospects or players who've played professionally higher up the leagues. It's difficult. I mean, you know, some they'll, be, they'll all be in different financial situations, I guess, but... Yeah, it's difficult, I suppose, to stress for like an American listener how weird it is that Arsenal will be playing Sutton because I have once been to Gander Green Lane, which is where they play, and it is so far removed from any football experience you might have imagined if you've like, say you've gone and seen a Premier League game or you just watched the Premier League or whatever. It is completely, completely different. It's in, a, it's, it's in kind of South London or far kind of suburban South London and the ground is like, it has like a Bovril hut and like a tiny little shed from which they sell merchandise and like one stand and then just some really like windswept, cold kind of like terraces. It really, it's like something out of like the early 80s. So yeah, I mean, this will be, this kind of like game, the, the Sutton Arsenal game will be proper. I don't know, it's almost like, sort of too good to be true in terms of how FA Cup it is, how magic of the cup it is. I mean, it's like, it's almost the ideal draw, you know, fifth round, which is quite a long, like, that's quite a long way for a non-league side to have got anyway. But fifth round for a non-league side to draw Arsenal at home and for Arsenal to go and play on an artificial pitch in a weird suburban part of South London. I say weird, I'm sorry, people of Sutton, I'm not, you know, I'm not doing you down. I'm just saying, you know, a part of South London that Arsenal do not usually travel to is uh is pretty surreal so yeah it should be it should be a very interesting tie so is the game at this merry pudding lane or whatever it's called is that where it is or is it at emirates it's at gander green lane gander green lane sorry yeah no i liked your name for it <laughs> yeah no it's at gander green lane so I, I mean they're talking about moving it because i think they only have a five thousand um capacity even with like people standing so who knows where it'll end up being played. It could well be played at a bigger ground in South London. I mean, that's just speculation at this point, but it has been mooted. That's too bad. Like, I get it, especially if you're Sutton, because this is 
a huge like financial boost for them to play this game against Arsenal. And also, you know, you want them to be able to get as they deserve to get as much from it as they can. And obviously moving into a bigger ground would do that. But at the same time, if the magic of the FA Cup is about making Arsenal go to like this tiny little windswept terrace in suburban London, essentially, uh, doesn't it kind of, I don't know, work against that a little, that myth a little bit to, then move the game so that Sutton can capitalize on it more? Yeah, I think it probably does. I mean, interestingly, um, at the weekend, at the, at the conclusion of their um, fourth round tie against Leeds, which they won 1-0, um, the Sutton manager said that, he, he basically said that he wanted one of the big, you know, one of the big guns at their home ground because he wanted to have the best chance of winning it. So in a way, I'm not sure that he himself or like maybe his players do want to change the ground that might take a, you know take away their competitive edge in terms of what it's like to play you know at such a small ground or whatever Arsenal won't be used to those kind of um, surroundings uh, but you know you then you you think the Sutton board might well just say look it's the difference between us getting you know x thousand pounds and you know twice that or three times that and for a club like Sutton who are a pretty you know modest side in a in the, the sort of fifth tier of English football, you know, even if it's like in tens of thousands of pounds more, that's going to be like potentially a year's wages for them to pay. So, yeah, you know, it's kind of like a, there's a lot at stake, I guess. You're right, the romance of it is potentially sullied by moving it from, you know, a, a kind of traditional non-league ground where it's going to be held or, you know, is scheduled to be held. But at the same time, you know, I suppose someone at some point is going to make a pragmatic argument that, look, we could probably make a hell of a lot more money if we move it. So we'll see what wins the day, romance or pragmatism. Do you think Sutton will win? <laughs> I think that if... I, th- I have a strong suspicion that Arsene Wenger will play uh, a seriously weakened side, you know, potentially to the tune of, like, seven, eight or nine players being changed... Uh, and if that's the case, then I think Sutton have got a pretty good chance because they're, you know, I mean, it will still be very, very difficult for them in terms of quality, but they're a cogent side that, you know, it's their number one priority for the entire season. And, you know, add the slight mitigating factors or levelling factors of the artificial pitch, which Arsenal won't be used to playing on. And, you know, just a, just again, like a rather alien setting for the match. I think potentially, it, you know, it's there's no reason it couldn't be an upset like... You know, now they'll almost certainly go and beat them 8-0. But I still think if if Arsenal are hubristic about the way they go about it, they could be caused serious problems by Sutton. Yeah, because I, th- I just think, you know, in an over the course of 90 minutes on a, on a kind of strange, strange pitch in a strange setting, Arsenal will actually have to, you know, produce something, produce some relatively good football to, to beat them. It's the same for, um, for Burnley, who play Lincoln, who are the other non-league sides still in the competition, you know, they, they can't afford to... Burnley can't afford to play a weakened team there, I don't think. You know, the, these sides have shown that they can upset people as high as the championship, so, you know, why not Why not go one further? I hope Wenger gives the, the loyal fans of Sutton the greatest gift he can, which is the chance to watch Mesut Ozil and Alexis Sanchez play in such an intimate setting. And those two just decimate the bricklayers like i would i would i want to watch that game so badly where ozil and sanchez just basically play 
the equivalent of a team on like easy mode on FIFA. It feels a bit like if he plays Ozil and Sanchez and they destroy the bricklayers at football, then they should have to do some sort of community project by which they <laughs> go and make a wall out of bricks and then the bricklayers are like, oh, that's shit. Like, well done, Ozil. Like, can't use a bloody cement spreader, can you, mate? Like, I don't know. They should like have to inverse their jobs so they have to make a really shit wall. <laughs> I, I support this just all around. I think, I think I would like the FA Cup a lot more if it involved these international all-star teams just shellacking, like, a bunch of bricklayers and plumbers on the regular basis. I think it really lowers the esteem of the cup, the fact that, like, Premier League teams put out these weakened rosters and they're actually competitive games. Yeah, no, that's that's definitely true. But, I mean, one thing... And there's been a lot of soul-searching about that and the kind of the spirit of the FA Cup has it been lost because people don't care about it or, you know, managers don't care about it. But one thing I would add is that, in fairness, we've seen a lot of kind of upsets and weird results because, like, weekend teams have been played. So in a way, although it's not ideal and you'd like to see everyone treating it with, like, kind of maximum respect because it is basically a a good competition, an important competition, at, at the same time, it's kind of like... Well, you know, if Leeds United put out a team that are essentially a a mixed team of kids, then they are going to get beaten by non-league sides and non-league sides are going to get some pretty exciting ties like Sutton Arsenal. So, yeah, I mean, in some ways it's had like a, I don't know, kind of a non-intentional good effect on the the competition. Yeah, so before that game takes place in a few weeks... The January transfer window wraps up today, Will, in case you didn't know. And, I don't know, it's been a pretty boring transfer window not much has happened right is that is that fair to say yeah I think that is fair to say yeah I mean I think this this January transfer window has been pretty kind of emblematic of how the whole concept of a mid-season transfer window has been hugely hugely overhyped to to almost the point of like comedy I mean actually last year um last year in the January transfer window was before I moved to Vice and I was still working uh, at the Daily Mirror and I was like in the office on transfer deadline day. Everyone was in the office, and it was. I mean, we you know we were trying to trying to create good content surrounding it, but it was actually uh, quite difficult in that all, I think almost nothing happened. And you have to kind of ask now whether the January transfer window and transfer deadline day and just all of these kind of features, these like kind of superfluous features of football whether or not they're just all part of the sort of Sky Sports marketing shtick, but that actually in reality they are just nonsense, basically. You know, very rarely do they live up to, not not just to their billing, but even to any remote significance. Usually they are just, yeah, I mean, usually nothing happens, basically. I've noticed that Sky Sports has like this whole deadline day live stream on Twitter this year and they have this whole headquarters where people are like updating minute by minute and it's like I find this comically ridiculous because like you say like nothing happens like maybe like one transfer of any note will happen today and they'll just be like sitting in front of the camera being like 7:30 p.m. and 32 seconds Still no transfers. And it's just like, <laughs> I just don't really, un- like, yeah, it seems it seems totally made up. But that being said, there was one fair, one pretty notable transfer in Pyatt going to Marseille and West Ham finally selling their best player. And really, like, only player worth 
noting. I don't know. It seems it seems like a weird situation. West Ham seems like they're in a really weird place right now because they've got this new stadium with no identity that fans are having a lot of difficulty creating ties with and making it feel like home. And to boot, they just sold their only real player of note with any kind of skill set that could potentially be useful to another team on the planet. So now they're just left with... I mean, it's West Ham, so you don't want to say there's no identity, right? Because they have such history, but they've also pretty much dispelled of that entire history in the last 12 to 16 months. It's definitely, I mean, the, the selling pie is definitely, I think, an embarrassment for their, um, for their kind of club hierarchy because, you know, they're trying to create quite a cogent marketing strategy having moved to the London Stadium and trying to sell the new vision of West Ham as like a, you know, a, a far more corporate club with a much cleaner image who are, you know, going to attract top talent and I think we've kind of seen with their with their transfer bids over the last couple of uh, windows that or you know the rumoured kind of players that they've been in for that they've sl- they seem to have tried to step up their recruitment strategy but the problem is it basically you know it hasn't worked it's it, you know just because you have more kind of not prestige but I suppose that I, you know I, the London Stadium has been presented as some sort of arbitrary step up for them as a club as a whole and I'm not sure that players are buying that yet so really you know, Payet wanted to go to Marseille, kind of, that's, that's, pre- that's not actually that weird, I don't think. I mean, I think there's been a very uh, Anglo-centric view on it from some of the press here. Like, for instance, uh, Ray Wilkins, former, like, Chelsea player and gen- all-round England football bod, said that Payet was moving to a pathetic, in inverted commas, league, uh, going to League One or Ligue 1. And yeah, I mean, that's just absurd. Like Marseille are a huge, huge club who have been like, you know, internationally successful. And, you know, I don't know, I think West Ham kind of nailed their colours to the mast in terms of, you know, they, they really marketed Payet, they really marketed the London Stadium along with him. And having lost him, it, I don't know, it feels a little bit like the kind of, the bubble has burst a little bit or possibly that you know it's kind of like a balloon deflating it's like they've gone they had this marketing strategy they had a player that they were going to like build a team around and then that player has got a a good offer from a from a big club in France and basically said I'd like to return to France I mean I think it's quite um quite deflating really backing up a second uh to Ray Wilkins comments I would just like to point out that Marseille is currently in sixth in Ligue 1 with 33 points. Lyon is in fourth with 37, and then PSG is in third with 46. So basically, like, Marseille has a shot to get in fourth, but no higher. Meanwhile, West Ham is fighting relegation. So I think he's off the mark by a significant portion by saying that Marseille is pathetic or plays in a pathetic league or whatever his remarks were. Like, this is arguably a step up for Payet, going from West Ham to Marseille. But the other thing is, I, I don't really get, if West Ham really was trying to build anything around Payet, like, I get why, of course, because he's such a talented player, but at the same time, he's, what, like, 29 years old? Like, how long can you really count on building something around him? It's true, you can't, um, I, th- I think the whole situation is kind of representative of how you can, you know, marketing in football is a really sort of hit and miss thing because I, you know there are so many times that a player has that a club sorry has built a marketing strategy around a player and then that player has decided that their future's elsewhere or like you say you know they've decided they have one more career move in them so they've gone and you know it 
I don't know, it often leaves the club with egg on their face, I think. I mean, it stands out for me, you know, in the era when like Arsenal were selling a lot of players, you know, players like Robin Van Persie and Cesc Fabregas had whole kind of, I don't know, the imagery of like a footballing dynasty built around them. And then those players left and it kind of, it was, it was extremely embarrassing, I think. And, and I think West Ham have basically suffered that same experience with Payet. Um, I mean, there was, there's talk of like, his, he's got some mural on the side of, the, on the, side of um, the ground or, you know, some sort of like stenciled like image of him. And I think it's being replaced with Andy Carroll's overhead kick. But I mean, you know, <laughs> that's, that's, quite embar- that's just quite embarrassing, really, having to do that in the middle of the season, having to replace like imagery of one of your great, you know, one of your, the players you've sold season tickets on, you know, on the side of your stadium with an image of Andy Carroll doing an overhead kick. I don't know. It's just like, it feels like there's quite a lot of bathos there. That's kind of quite a, I don't know, if I was a West Ham fan, I think I would be feeling seriously disappointed about the whole, the way that it, the whole kind of move has panned out. Instead of, instead of Andy Carroll doing an overhead kick, it should be like Andy Carroll rising above a center back for a header from the edge of the box that gets easily caught by the kick. Yeah, or just like Andy Carroll, just like toe poking it in from two yards. I mean, in, fair, in fairness to Andy Carroll, I don't want to go in on Andy Carroll here. No, no, Andy Carroll, well, nobody's knocking Andy Carroll here. Andy Carroll's a good, good player at what he does, but I mean, like, the idea that you would create a mural for him is, ugh, that's depressing. That's like, I don't know, that's like, it's like going to Buffalo Wild Wings and getting, like, 20 wings and calling it the best meal you've ever had. Like, there's nothing wrong with Buffalo Wild Wings and good <laughs> wing, but, like, nobody would call it, like, the finest meal they've ever eaten, so. Yeah, I mean, I think, basically, the way that it was sold to West Ham fans when they moved was that they'd got Pia, they'd got a team that, you know, they'd got kind of the foundations of a, of a team that was going to be built on, and they were moving to this new stadium, and it was all onwards and upwards for them. And I think, basically, they found that, actually, you know, whether it's just arbitrary or not there is still a glass ceiling for West Ham they haven't found a successful way of breaking through that yet and actually they've lost a lot of their momentum you know in the last kind of few months basically because the London Stadium hasn't gelled that well with fans like you said but also because their results have been pretty poor and now because they've essentially lost the player on who the kind of whole experience was was sold so yeah it's a it leaves them with a hell of a lot to do in terms of rebuilding relationships with the fans the club that is and also uh, just rebuilding the team the other thing is they really mismanaged this too because they could have sold Pyatt for what I mean obviously you're just going on rumors here but over the summer after his fantastic season last year I mean he was getting rumored to be targeted by Barcelona and all these other clubs and I'm sure they could have sold him for more than like the 25 million pounds they sold him for now like it seems like they just you know if they were gonna sell him over the summer was the time it seems like they really just mismanaged this possibly I mean obviously there's a there's a I I mean it it does obviously look like that there's no denying it but that there's a there is a heavy degree of hindsight in this I mean is there though like I mean I I don't know if I, I I don't know. I don't think there's really that much hindsight going in. Like, the summer was the time to sign him. He's a 29-year-old player who had his breakout season that year. Like, in the same way that uh, in the same way that I think Leicester City really screwed up not selling Vardy over the summer. Like, I'm, well, I guess Vardy said no. Like, they tried to sell him, so that's a different story. But, like, I don't know. It seems like it really isn't that much hindsight. It seems I, I, I thought they should have sold him in the summer because it was obvious, and it just seems even more so now. Maybe. I mean... I'm- my thought would be more that it would have been very difficult for them to move to London Stadium, sell their best player before they'd even got there, and then like pursued the season from a 
sort of position of starting mediocrity. I mean, obviously things haven't gone well, but there's no saying that had the team not got better results and been in and around, you know, the kind of Europa League places that Payet might have stayed. So I don't know. I like, you know, I, I'm not saying you're right or wrong. I'm just saying I don't. In, you know, looking back on it, I can see why they didn't sell him. But you're right. I mean, the the reality of it is, had they done it then, they would have got a hell of a lot more money and you know, potentially brought in a like, well, if not a like for like replacement, then certainly a player of you know a similar caliber who could have got people excited. Now they're at a position where they neither have the star player nor the money, particularly. I mean, they have some money, but it's not a massive, you know, recoup. Yeah, I think that's basically where I come down on it. Like, if you sold him for, let's even say, you know, less, I think it was rumored he would get sold for like 57 million pounds, but let's assume that was a wild overestimate. Let's just say 40. I think they could have sold him for 40 over the summer, and it would have, and they, you know, you could bring in, a few decent players for that. I just, so I don't know. I get what you're saying. Like you want to have that marquee player when you move into a new stadium. But I guess this is where I kind of come at it from a more American perspective where teams move stadiums all the time and they never really feel the need to do anything marquee to attract fans. Cause it's just kind of like, a, which is, you know, it's, it's different. It's different here than it is over there. But like the Rams, for example, in the NFL, like they moved from St. Louis to LA and they didn't feel the need to bring in fuck all to, you know, play there. And it was like kind of a disaster, but nobody cares. And like, that's kind of, I don't know. I guess I'm arguing against myself here on this. <laughs> no, I get what you're saying. But, you know, obviously like the franchising thing is pretty, it's pretty alien here. I think what right. we can, what we can definitely agree on is that basically how it feels now is that Payet has pretty much got his way and if anyone's been played in this situation or played in this deal, it's definitely been the club. In the eternal kind of wrangle between club and player, this is one of those occasions where the player has definitely come out on top, I think. Agreed. Uh, speaking of alien franchising in the US, there was a rally in San Diego over the weekend to try and entice Major League Soccer for, uh, for uh, giving them an expansion club. There was a lot of press this weekend over the international protests, as we've already discussed. Uh, the MLS protest didn't get, or I shouldn't call it a protest, rally. It, was a, it didn't get quite as much attention from the news organizations, partially because it was about asking the fifth most popular professional league in the U.S. to award an expansion club to a mid-sized American city. Also, also partially because there were about 15 people participating in it. Also partially because it was a hilariously inept rally in which they held banners with no fewer than two different hashtags for people to tweet about. And that their only chant was ripped off from the uh, Muslim ban protests around the country, which, yeah, I don't know if that was such a wise move. So that was sad. I don't know. Will, did you even did you even see any of the protest news? I did. I did. I did see the uh, San Diego rally thing briefly as well. And, you know, I don't I don't claim to know much about San Diego or indeed uh, the MLS. But, yeah, it did seem like it's possibly uh, not the most advisable time to hold a sort of pseudo-political rally, considering that, you know, that's likely to be drowned out in the current uh, current political climate. So, yeah, a little bit odd. But, hey, I guess, I guess someone thought it was a good idea. It's just a weird situation. Because MLS right now has basically announced that they're going to continue expanding and they're taking bids from cities. It's like basically the IOC model in a way, which is 
not a flattering comparison for either entity. But the rumored expansion fees are somewhere in the neighborhood of $150 million, which means, I mean, I, I don't know if our you know UK listeners know what like an expansion fee is because it's a pretty American concept, but uh, any new team admitted into the league has to pay this fee, which then gets spread out amongst the existing owners. And if you yourself are saying to your, you know, if you are saying to yourself, hey, Aaron, that kind of sounds like a pyramid scheme. Well, uh, the answer is yes, it does sound like a pyramid scheme. Uh, I neither can neither confirm nor deny that it is one. And the vice lawyers have encouraged me to repeat that I am not saying MLS is a pyramid scheme. All I'm doing is noting that the more people that they recruit into MLS, the more money that the existing members make, which is not at all what a pyramid scheme is. Anyways, uh, the MLS expansion fee is $150 million, up from $10 million about five years ago. So uh, MLS is not a pyramid scheme. Uh, So that's what's going on in MLS right now. Yeah, I'm glad that you're the first person who've mentioned the lawyers this week. Usually it's me who brings up like legal worries. So yeah, it's it's on you this week. Yeah, uh, I don't know. It's it's just weird to me that like MLS... uh, So... (laughs) My favorite uh, MLS story is that at the end of 2015, like December of 2015, I emailed, uh, or I'm sorry, let me start over. Tim, you can cut that previous part. Uh, My favorite MLS story is that at the end of 2015, I did an interview with the commissioner of the league, Don Garber, uh, and I asked him what the league's expansion plans were. And how many teams he envisions in the future. Because of just a few weeks earlier at a convention, one of the MLS owners uh, stated that he could envision like a two-tiered MLS system in which there's like promotion and relegation between the two tiers and there are 40 teams total. So I asked him about this because MLS currently has 20 teams. And he said, uh, or at the time they had 20 teams. And he said, I can only envision, you know, what we currently have in the league, like, you know, with the... At the time, they were uh, bringing in Orlando, and they were like basically. He he essentially told me like, "This is what I think. I think we're good at this point." I was like, "Okay." Literally two months later, MLS announced that they were going to expand again. Like, so either he didn't, you know, either he was withholding information, which is almost certainly the case, or they literally decided in those two months that they were going to expand again. Like, the league is expanding so fast, and they keep. And it it leads to these bizarre situations that they have right now where, like, 10 different cities are bidding for a team, which is great for now. But what's going to happen when they get to 30 teams or whatever and the quality of play in the league isn't great because the salaries are still low and there are no more cities to expand to because then the league will be too big? Like, I don't know. They just don't seem to be thinking in the future. Yeah, I mean... Is there a city that actually needs an MLS team, in your opinion? I mean, how do you define need? Who would actually benefit from one? Clearly not San Diego, in, like, in your opinion. Well, San Diego's a funny, funny instance because, you know, obviously they're right on the border with Mexico. And uh, the club in Tijuana is quite popular among San Diegans. Like, a lot of people cross the border to go watch Cholos. So it's like... I So, yeah, San, Die- San Diego maybe less than any other American city needs an MLS team because, I mean, Carson's a far drive, and that's where the LA Galaxy are uh, currently play. That's like two and a half hours, so that's a bit much. But, like, 
cholos to go across the border to watch is nothing i mean that that's one of the <laughs> it's less of a drive for them it's less inconvenient for them to go watch the game than it is for me to go watch an mls game in brooklyn to go to either red bull or uh nycfc in in the bronx so it's like does san diego really need a team probably not um there are a few cities that seem pretty likely to get a team sacramento is one that people talk about so is cincinnati uh I'm trying to think who else is also a popular bid. Uh, I know Tampa Bay wants one really badly. Like, it, there's all these like mid-sized American cities that are vying for one, and it's like, do any of these cities? Ne- oh, St. Louis is probably going to get a team because it's a bigger city, a bit a big historically rich soccer market as far as U.S. are concerned, and they just lost their NFL team, so that seems likely, but. No, none of these cities need a team. Like, who needs a soccer team? Yeah, well, it's, I, I don't know. It's a good question. We, we have soccer teams or football teams in pretty much everywhere from, like, you know, large parts of London to tiny rural towns like Kidderminster. So, you know, if anything, we definitely don't take advice from us on where to put football teams because we'll just put them in every single human settlement imaginable. I mean, I would be all for that system in the u.s where like i was never more than 10 miles from a soccer team of some sort but the fact is mls doesn't just like put a soccer team there they also demand that they be of a certain size and have a stadium of a certain size and oh by the way you taxpayers better chip in for that stadium it just comes with all this baggage that frankly i don't want from my soccer team like i my ideal scenario is that basically non-league level football takes off in the U.S. Because I don't want, uh, you know, like we have enough over-corporatized sports in the U.S. already. I don't need more of that. What I need is, uh, you know, a small team that plays pretty crappy soccer but sells cheap beer and lets me watch, you know, a pretty crappy soccer game outside for two hours every couple of, every week or two and charges me like five bucks to get in. Like, that's what I want. Yeah, I suppose like, you know, listening, listening to you talk about it that way, it seems like in some ways, like obviously sport in Britain has kind of been like bottom up in the, you know, clubs were formed from like, you know, any, for any number of reasons, just through geography or like local communities to like works teams, like factory teams like West Ham, you know, were like, like the Thames Ironworks team and stuff like that. So they're almost, it's almost like a in Britain and possibly Europe more generally, it's like a spontaneous football movement at a grassroots level that's then grown upwards. While in some ways in America, it's like a top-down kind of imposition of football in that there's like people have decided it's a lucrative sport. So clubs have been created to fill that market. And it's a, it's a very different like evolution of the game. So yeah, I mean, it's a weird one really in a way... Like, I suppose when I say, when I was asking which city needs a football team, like, I kind of do generally agree that I guess every city needs a football team and every town needs a football team. But then that's a completely different way of structuring football. So I guess there's a there's a real, like, kind of international cultural divide there. Yeah, that's a big topic to get into, especially 40 minutes into the podcast. Sorry, we'll have to save that for another week. Uh, last question. We'll do... We'll just- cover one more question and then we'll send our good people on the way we have one listener question we're going to tackle through this week it is from twitter user at 381 dakota and the question is is danny welbeck the best player in england 
Um, no. I'm going to say yes. Because, <laughs> okay, I'm not genuinely going to say yes, but I will argue that Danny Welbeck is actually quite a good player when healthy. He's just not healthy enough. No, I, I, I completely agree with this statement. Danny Welbeck is quite a good player when healthy, but he's just not healthy enough. But I st- I'm strongly disagree with the statement. It, Danny Welbeck is the best player in England. I mean, I would love it if he was. Um, and he does seem like a very nice lad and also actually a very good footballer and you know when he comes on he's he's kind of increasingly influential obviously he's had some serious on like seriously bad luck with injury but um is Danny Welbeck the best player in England certainly not on his current form or goal scoring record or history in the game so I guess he's probably got quite a long way to go before he you know might even be in the contention for that kind of an accolade but hey, if we t- if we tweak the question to say is Danny Welbeck the best English player or the best player on the English national team, does that change your answer? Um, well, I don't know. Like, not really. No, I'm not even sure you can say that. I mean, is it, I mean, yeah, that's kind of quite a difficult one in a way because England are in some ways absolutely dire. So I suppose <laughs> anyone who's even remotely like competitive is in some ways could have a claim to being the best player in the England national squad. But uh, I think there are probably some players who would rival Welbeck for that, for, that, uh, for that sort of claim. So, yeah, I don't know. I think, I think I'm wondering why this person has asked us this question. Do they have some sort of vested interest in Danny Welbeck doing well? I don't know. Like, I, I think it's an interesting question because Danny Welbeck's like one of the great, in some ways, great underrated, unblossomed kind of flowers of English football. But... You know, is he the best player in English football? The answer is basically no. Obviously, when you take a player who's 26 years old and has had injury problems for most of their career, it's very difficult to say if he just stays healthy because it's like he's established that he can't stay healthy. But that being said, (laughs) now to directly contradict myself, if Danny Welbeck stays healthy for the next year and a half, I can easily envision a scenario where he is that first tier of players uh, on the English squad in Russia. And I know that sounds really ridiculous, like, because he's barely played for the last year due to his ACL injury. I mean, he's a really talented, versatile attacking like attacker. I mean, he can play on the wing, he can play more up front, uh, and I think he complements a lot of the other players England has up top. I just think it's really, you know, you have Harry Kane who's not as tactically flexible. You have Raheem Sterling who can basically play on the wing and that's more or less it. Uh, I think I think he could be really, really useful and good for that team. And I, I don't know, I'll, I'm not saying it's definitely going to happen, but I could envision a scenario where going to Russia, people are talking about Danny Welbeck as one of the more important players on the team. Yeah, I think, I think if he had a full season where all his, you know, fitness and conditioning worked out, I'm sure he could score, you know, potentially upwards of 18, 19, 20 goals and he would be right, right kind of up there with the, you know, the main striking options of the team. When he, when he was at Manchester United, you know, he, he in many ways had a, had a weird sort of stuttered start and, and potentially deserved to start more and play more games. Now he's at Arsenal, you know, he's possibly got a clearer route to the first team, so, or at least to a starting berth most weeks. So, yeah, it's, it's, it, there's sort of too many variables, as you say, because it's, it's very difficult to, uh, 
to sort of dismiss his injury record. But I mean, I, as I say, I, by all means, I would like it if Danny Welbeck became one of the best players in England. But um, yeah, he's got he's got a long way to go. All right, that's good stuff for this week. Will, do you have any? Anything else for the good people of the Chips podcast? Well, if anyone would like to diversify their knowledge of esoteric British sports, I've written several pieces on uh, the Six Nations this week, which is a kind of uh, rugby tournament in Europe. So, yeah, read read my Six Nations pieces, basically, and uh, and learn all about the, the glorious sport of rugby. Very good. I spoke to the organizers of a political movement in Hungary who are trying to get a referendum to remove Budapest as a contender for the 2024 Summer Olympics. Pretty interesting thing going on there. Basically, Hungary's incredibly divided political situation can only agree on one thing, that the Olympics are bad. And uh, I think I think this is a positive thing in the grand sense for the IOC. Like, they're going to have to really start reconsidering what bidding on the Olympics entails because they are just getting fewer and fewer bids because cities know it's bad for them. That's why I wrote about this week, but we... As always, appreciate you listening, and please do ask us questions. Uh, We're always happy to answer them, like, is Danny Welbeck the best player in England? But, you know, if you have other questions not about Danny Welbeck, we'll answer those too. You can ask us via Twitter, at Chips Podcast, or you can send us an email, uh, chips at vicesports.com, or you can tweet at me, A underscore W underscore Gordon, or at Will, who... We coincidentally have the same like Twitter handle format. He's at Will underscore F underscore McGee. So that's about it for this week. Will, do you have any final words? Enjoy your week and yeah, resist. Keep protesting. Resist. I like that as our final sign off message. Hopefully, hopefully we'll be back next week. I don't know. I feel like any week has the potential to just be the last week we exist. So uh, yeah, hopefully we'll be back next week and resist. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.